All right. The big episode to end out the year. And I am joined by a very special guest. Ben, why don't you introduce yourself and what you do? Hey, Gary, thanks for having me on. No, it's, uh, I'm Benjamin Bernier. Uh, yeah, by all means, call me Ben. But no, I am the host of the Thugs and Miracles podcast, which unfortunately I got to podcasting about a year or two after you started. So you took the history of the French podcast, which is a great title name. Uh, so uh, no, but history of uh, the French has always appealed to me. I think the key difference between you and I is I really started at the end of the Roman era and went with talking about the Merovingian kings as the first kings of France. And uh, I've been working from there forward. Right now, I am through season two. I have done the Merovingians over those two seasons, uh, hit all of the kings, uh, really tried to emphasize the queens as well inside of all that. And I'm looking forward in later on this month to starting season three, which is going to start looking forward to the Carolingians. Yeah, it's always nice to have another French historian, or I should say a historian of France, because there aren't too many in podcasting. Um, there's myself, there's uh, the Siacla, which covers the years 1815 to 1914. And then there is one other that ranks the kings of France. But otherwise, we're kind of... I think we're in surprisingly short supply. There's so many histories of the United States and of Britain, but I mean, who wants to hear about those? I mean, we we got where it's at, don't we, Ben? Absolutely. Hey, you know, I can say that we're laying claim to a recent movie. You know, The Last Duel was just in theaters and was talking about the same type of stuff we're talking about. And, uh, you know, obviously it must have some sort of crowd support of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are out there swinging swords at each other for it. So it's... It's a fun time. Uh, I think it's definitely very cool, very interesting history. And like I said, I really appreciated your approach where you went back really almost to geoforming and, you know, Neolithic era and talked about how everything built up to where we got. Um, I kind of just picked up, you know, really where the the Romans left off. But I'm excited about all this. And I really do. Like you said, I mean, I think it's cool that, you know, we are I guess we're kind of competitors, but we're also I, I think we can be very friendly. I think there's more than enough pie to go around when it comes to French history. There's just not too many people out there who are looking pre-revolution. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I hope to inspire some people to look uh, back further. I remember I got a review on Apple Podcasts and uh, somebody said, why is he talking about something pointless like the Chauvet Caves? Why doesn't he talk about Napoleon? So Oh, there's another podcast. There is uh, the uh, Age of Napoleon Napoleon. podcast. So there are a couple ones. But, um, you know, there's more to France than uh, just Napoleon. And we are here to talk about the day. In fact, there are other great leaders in the history of France other than Napoleon. And we are here to rank the Merovingian kings of Francia, although there's we're putting in a little caveat. So we are ranking those who were kings of all united Francia, not simply the kings of a part of Francia, because if we did that, then we would have over 30 kings and we would run out of stuff to say. But we have a list of 14 monarchs and we are going to rank them today. Sounds great. No, I agree. Uh, yeah, I think I ended up at 34, and that was mostly because I decided not to go past Maravec and go into the you know the pre-kings of Francia that 
You can find in some sources, you don't find a lot of information on them. So I think it's definitely safe to go ahead and cut it to 34. And then for this, certainly, yeah, 14. So uh, however you want to start this. So before we even start this, let me ask you, what was your ranking system for these Kings? I'll tell you my ranking system. So basically what I did was I ranked how the Kings performed while they were in office. And then I tried to gauge how their actions affected the long-term standing of the country. So I ranked them on a scale from negative three to three on uh, military power in office, economic expansion, cultural growth, and state management, um, with negative three being that they were far worse than their predecessors, and then three being that they were better than their predecessors, and then zero, that they just was there was no evolution or growth. And then I looked at the long-term military stability, economic stability, and then civil service. And then I tallied them up. I know this isn't a perfect system, but none of them are. But you have a very different system for ranking them. You are basically taking the baseball format, yes? So, yeah, no, what, I, what I've done over the course of all this, and I'm hoping to be able to keep it going through all the Kings as we go further on in time, but I've been doing, in baseball, there's a stat called wards, the wins above replacement. And so if you have a player who is a zero ward, that means they are the basically just standard player for that position. And so I apply this to the Kings uh, in the ranking I use. It was actually very similar to what you just said. I went from negative 10 to plus 10 instead of negative three to plus three, but same general idea, you know, just arbitrary number at that point. And what I was looking at was the length of reign, uh, looking at their significant alliances, what their monuments or their their physical additions to history would have been. So in a case, you know, probably the most prominent one inside of this grouping was Dagobert I. He was the one who put Saint Denis on the map. He was the one who now that church was the, you know, the, um, sarcophagus or whatever. It was the resting place of all the Merovingian kings and all the kings actually of France up until, uh, you know, the the 19th century. So very significant uh, spot there. I looked at legal codes. I looked at significant military victories and defeats, obviously the war part of it. Uh, And then also their political influence, their ability to control their court. So that's where somebody like, you know, the Waffenians all lost a lot of points because they had no control of the court. Uh, The economics, I was looking at societal changes, infrastructure development. Uh, To be very honest, almost none of the Merovingians really get much in the way of infrastructure development, just simply because they were mostly piggybacking off the Roman roads and stuff at that point. And then finally, I looked at one category that I don't think you have, which is strength of spouse. Um, I really want to incorporate the queens into all this. I really want to incorporate the, the fact that there was alliances, whether or not the queen was necessarily strong herself, but the alliances that they were able to develop with these different, uh, in Clovis's case, you know, he was able to get a sister, his daughters, and he obviously married, you know, into Clotilde. So I thought that was a very important category, the strength of spouse. And I took all that up. I divided it by 10 and got a score. All right. Fantastic. So I was thinking that we would go from our absolute worst and then make our way up to number one. And going into this, I was pretty sure who your number one would be. But I think that the uh, absolute bottom and maybe the middle, we might have some disagreement on. So having said that, 
Uh, do you want to take it away and tell us who you thought was the worst Merovingian king? Who is number 14? Well, so number 14, simply because he was the last Merovingian king, and you can say he lost it all, is Childeric III, in my opinion. Uh, Childeric III really was a puppet. He was brought into power by, um, you know, Charles Martel and also the ilk after him and held in that esteem, you know, essentially just to go ahead and take it to the end. Uh, you know, there was really no need. And actually, you know, I take it back. I, I think it was actually Pepin who put him back into power after Charles Martel had the interregnum. So I apologize there. Uh, but any rate, yeah, he was not anything except for a figurehead and when they needed to get rid of him when they finally decided it was convenient he had nothing to hold on to so he went away uh that's gonna be the story of a lot of the Waffeniant uh coming up but since he was last i put him last so i'm glad that you and i agreed on who was the worst i made a lot of excuses for the uh particularly for those who were children when they assume power but there's really no excuse you can make for childric the third he is the figurehead of figureheads um according to einhard uh childric would be wheeled in by an ox cart and give answers prepared by the mayors of the palace to visiting ambassadors. And so he was the epitome, the picture of the useless king, and he didn't even try to make a grab for power, although unlike certain of his predecessors. So there's really no defending Childeric. Yeah, no, I mean, he was so bad. That ultimately, when Pepin did want to take over power, you know, in 751, all he had to do was go to the Pope, who was having some hard times himself, and just, you know, really look at him and say, what's the point? Um, I know he had a better quote than that, you know, in Einhard and all that, but essentially looked at him and said, you know, if he doesn't actually wield power, then why is he in power? And the Pope agreed, and next thing you know, the, the Merovingians were done. So, yeah, you have to go ahead and assign points to somebody or take points away for having lost it, right? No kidding. So now that we've figured out who's the worst, let's work our way up. So who is your number 13? So my number 13 is the Derek the third. Um, you know, he was just, he was deposed by Childeric in 673, but he returned to power in 675. Ultimately, just not really a very strong king. Again, he was actually kicked out of the kingship and he came back in because of political convenience later on. Nothing else really ranked with him very well. And, you know, so control of court in particular, I gave him a negative 10 because he was kicked out by his brother. Um, so as he did get the chance to be a standalone king simply because of other people dying around him, but he was not a very powerful uh, king and was only there because it was useful to other people. And so I have him as 13. Oh, wow. Well, you're going to hate me because I have him... Uh, significantly higher. So I'll tell you who I have. So I actually, um, perhaps my system isn't as precise because you went from negative 10 to positive 10, but I went from negative three to positive three. And in looking at the Waffenian, there was a lot of them who there's only so much you can say because there isn't too much surviving material. And a lot of them, you look at them and you say, well, they were basically just uh, figureheads. So I actually have a tie between Dagobert III and Theuderic IV. So for Dagobert, Dagobert III, 
what's great about him is that he's so completely and utterly irrelevant that the Lieber Francorum reported that he, he existed and that's it. <laughs> he doesn't even get a kind word like Childebert III. It's just, okay, there was a king and that was all. So I ranked him extremely low. And then for Theodoric IV, there's another case where he did nothing. He was a pure figurehead that was kept in Chell Abbey and then in uh, Chateau Thierry and couldn't even, you know, essentially leave his backyard. So those are the uh, two that I ranked as uh, tied for 12th. So... Um, in that case, I think it's back over to you since you have uh, individuals instead of just uh, my two there who came in for your 12. Well, so actually, I would go ahead and say you know, at 11 and 12, I actually agree with you on Dagobert the Third and the Derek the Fourth for all the for all the reasons you basically said. I mean, when you literally are listed in the only significant historical source as he was there. Yeah, that's I mean. But the only thing that I have there, and it's kind of weird because you look at my ranking system, you give him zeros across the board for that because there was nothing to say about him. So you have to acknowledge that he was a king, but it's not a perfect system because, I mean, I can see where you could rank him lower simply because of the fact that, I mean, that's just not enough to stand on. When you go back to Clothar III, I had him, you know, he lost, he was in power for 17 years, depending on who you're looking at, or I'm sorry, the correction, the Derek III. He was in power for 17 years, but he lost his, you know, one significant battle he went into. He didn't have control of the court. That's why he ended up getting ranked lower. But almost if he had just died, you know, early on in life, as many of these younger guys did, or, you know, like Dagobert the Third and Thederic the Fourth did, he probably would have just been a zero. He would have actually been higher for simply not having been around as long. So it is an imperfect system. So that's where I'm at. So I feel like we actually have the same people so far. You said Thederic the Third was higher on your yours. So I'd be curious, who do you have then at your eleven? My 11. So, okay. So here is my only other tie. So uh, I have Clovis the fourth and Childebert the third. So Clovis the fourth. Here's another case where um, because the later kings usually came in as children, then there's not much to say about them. So Clovis the fourth, he ruled for two years as a minor. And then one year as a figurehead, he did virtually nothing and then died. And then for Childebert the third, he was ranked as a fairly just king. And he did rule against the Pippinids in legal cases on some occasions. He was a king for 17 years, but he basically was just a puppet of the Pippinids. In retrospect, maybe because he ruled for so long, I could have put him higher, but because he was uh, just a pure puppet, he gets fairly low. So I have them as tied for 10th place. But you have an individual 11th monarch? No, that's, so that sounds about right to me where you have him. So I would definitely say Clovis the Fourth is going to be down at the lower end. I have uh, Demesere having written about him that he died being aged 14 or 15 years and neither had seen nor done anything that was memorable in his reign. So he got more words than, than Dagobert Third, but only for the same thing. Again, where he's at is zero. Um, so I have him in that. I think that was my 11. And then at 10... I am looking at 
come on over here. It looks like Clothar the third I have as a negative uh, 0.6. Again, same, same reasons that you've been putting forth. All these Waffenians are all in a situation where they really have no control of the court. They're puppets. Um, he had one significant... He had a military loss. He didn't do anything militarily, so I had him losing a couple points there. And he was in power for six years, which was a little bit longer than some of the other Waffenians. But again, probably out of power by the time he's in his early 20s, if even that long. Uh, so that's who I have down at my number 10. All right. So, yeah, we are reaching the point where we're getting more to say about them. But I think for the Waffenian, I think very often the best you can say about these characters is that they did nothing because some seem to do even worse than nothing. So who is your number nine? At number nine, I'm going to start going into, I think you already said Childebert the third is one of yours. So I have him in there. Um, and that can be a tie with Childeric the second as well. Uh, mostly, well, actually, I'll hold off on Childeric the second. I actually have, I'm going to say Childeric the third in my nine. I'm going to go with Childeric the second at eight. So I, I put at number nine, I have uh, Childeric the second. Um, I give him points because he tried to assert his kingship. And with his allies, he did make uh, Charles Martel flee for a time. So that's the pros that I give him. But then the con being that he eventually failed. Charles Martel dethroned him. He fled to Odo, Duke of Aquitaine, and tried to retain power and lost that too. See, I give him points for trying, which is why I put uh, Theuderic III a bit higher than you did, because you seem to not be a fan of his. But I would rank a king who tried and failed far above one who uh, didn't even try at all. So my number nine is Chilperic II. So I, I can agree with you on almost everything you're saying there. I guess I had him... Just a little bit, I had him a higher, and only in the sense of, you know, one or two places. I agree with you that he did have a some more significant historical role. Um, pushing back Charles Martel, I really lay almost all of that at Plectrude's feet, which was his grandmother at that point. Yeah, I, um, probably, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, it, it was kind of cool. I got to go to Cologne and see her tomb, which is still around, which is amazing considering the amount of bombing that occurred there in World War II. But uh, I digress. No, but so, Joe yeah, he... Um, Again, as the figurehead, he was the one who was in charge of all these things. It buck stops at his office, and he had a more interesting history. I don't think that he really did much as far as you know advancing the Merovingian cause or bringing them any closer to being a sustainable force. Obviously, Charles Martel being the first of the really heavy hitting Carolingians, uh, you know, was able to turn the tables on him. So I feel like he does lose some ground there. But I agree with your overall sentiment that just simply because of the fact that he was able to progress in any way, shape, or form in that time period, that he did try and he deserves some amount of points just for that. So who is uh, your number nine? So, yeah, no, I would say Childeric II is next on my list. And mostly the biggest thing for him is, as opposed to having tried, like we just said with the last one, with the last king there, Childeric II, his issue was that he had the most potential to probably do something, and he didn't. Um, he ended up marrying Billishild, uh, his first cousin. But, I mean, again, we all know with royalty that was fairly common. They did have two boys, uh, one of whom was Daniel, uh, who ended up becoming actually uh, the later on Chilperic the second, uh, and was used in the realm of uh, whether or not they found him or they actually found the right person. That's another question I have about some of these kings. They really were put into power based on who you know the mayor of the palace needing a figurehead at that time. But 
he was the one who had the most potential to go somewhere. And he ends up getting killed because he essentially got peeved at one of his uh, bodyguards, had him taken out, a noble, had him taken out and whipped publicly. That bodyguard then goes ahead and planned to assassinate him and did so while they were out on a hunt. And so the fact that he had everything going his way, he had already sired heirs. He had a wife who was doing good things for him. Uh, he really had all the potential in the world and it just never came to anything because he died by basically making somebody mad and having them go ahead and kill him uh, six years into his reign, left him in a position where I feel like he would have been good. He could have been better. And so that's as high as he can get on the list for me. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. See, that is interesting, and I think this shows the difference that we have in ranking them in that I actually have Childeric II at number six because, again, he, at a time when kings were weak, he was someone who actually asserted his rule. I agree with everything you said about him being a moron. I think there's no debating that. I mean, he... Uh, sent away Duke Wolfwald, the mayor of the... Uh, I, no, it's, he didn't send away Duke Wolfwald. He made him the mayor of the Palace of All Francia, not just Austrasia, which angered the Neuestrians. He married his cousin, which I'm guessing that's how he got a lower ranking with you because you were ranking based on wives as well. But then he, when the Bishop of Atun condemned it, he exiled the Bishop to Luxoy, where he conspired with other nobles and had him killed. So I'm not going to argue that he wasn't a moron, because he was a moron. He was uh, <laughs> fantastically awful in that regard. But at a time when the Merovingians were figureheads, he actually, because he was able to, ex or not excommunicate, but because he was able to exile someone, and he was able to marry his cousin. I'm not coming out for marrying cousins, but the fact that he was able to do that in the face of widespread condemnation shows that he at least have some power. So I, I actually ranked him uh, much higher than that. So, you know, you know, uh, bad king morally, but I, I give him props for the time that he he spent in office with his power. So. That's uh, quite a difference we have there. It is, but I feel like everything you just said kind of plays into my next guy, who's Childebert III. Um, another person who was very similar to what you just said, who was able to go ahead and exercise some degree of control, who was actually noted, you know, when you go back and you look at uh, the Liber Historia Francorum, who's calling him, uh, I'm quoting here, the glorious lord of good memory, Childebert, the righteous king. Mm -hmm. um, 
he was also with Pippin when they were able to go ahead and fight against the Frisians. They were able to go north into the east. They were the Frisians were always one of those groups that they had a lot of trouble quelling and putting down. And it really wasn't until Charles Martel had uh, almost unrestricted access to go to you know what's now modern day Amsterdam to go fight that group that they were able to finally bring the Frisians into their fold. And even after that, they were still rebellious. So, but he was in power when you know things were kind of ascendant. The mayor of the palace was in control. The Pippins and they were actually pushing their their case and i give him credit for being again if we're going to go ahead and say like shilderic the third has to go ahead and get knocked for having been in power when everything fell apart i have to give shilderbear the third a little bit of credit for having been in power when things were actually going pretty well even though it was really probably going more well for the mayor of the palace than him proper okay well i did not give him credit for that so that is our big difference um, so, okay. So my number eight then was Clothar the third and more than anyone, it seems like he is just, uh, to me, he seems like a straight middle of the road. He was also a kid, so you couldn't really blame him for being just a figurehead and he didn't seem to do anything wrong. So not anything right, but anything wrong. So I ranked him as number eight. You had him much lower, though, because he was uh, weak. Am I correct? Yeah, that's pretty much about where we're at. I feel like we can agree <laughs> that oh, moment. Okay. So uh, I mentioned before, my number seven is Theodoric Third. I give him points for trying. So now we're entering into, I think, some of the more interesting kings. We're into our top six. So you, who do you have as your number six? So, yeah, no, I think that basically what we've done now is we've gotten through all the Waffeniant, who all, we can make arguments, you know, within a point or two for almost all of them based, you know, and if we're going to give them extra points for trying harder or for having been around when something good was happening, we can say that about all of them. And so now that these top ones, I feel like this is where the conversation is going to get interesting. And I think we, you and I are going to get into some real disagreements as far as like, you know, just who ranks where. I and hope honestly, so. yeah, no, out of that, well, otherwise it'd be kind of boring, wouldn't it? Yeah. No. So out of all of this, I think the next person I have on my list in is going to be Clothar the second. Hmm. And the reason I have Clothar II up there, so he had 30 years in power in reign. Um, his mom was um, Fredegunda, and Fredegunda and uh, Brunhilde, the story of those two queens alone, is just took up a huge portion of season one for me. And it's just a really amazing uh, story how they came into power. But ultimately, he was the person who his mom got him into position, and he finally won by getting all the nobles to go ahead and agree to come to his side for some major concessions on his part. He essentially signed away almost all royal authority with the Edict of Paris to be able to go get Brunhilde thrown out of power. So when he came in, uh, in about you know the year 613 or 6, uh, 611, 613, somewhere in there, he went ahead, had Brunhilde executed. By 614, he signed away the power. So he's in He's reunified all of Francia, which was amazing at that point, considering that really as the king of Neustria before that, he had the smallest area of land and really should have been overrun at some point, but ends up taking over everything, but at the cost of selling his soul essentially to the nobles, which is where you start to see the Carolingians rise up. So that's why I have him at a zero, because for all the positives, for the length of reign he had, for the fact that he was able to reunify all of this stuff, he didn't really have much in the way of a strong spouse. He didn't really do anything in the way of legal codes once he was in power. And the Edict of Paris just gave away so much that I said for everything good he did, he essentially went back to zero by giving it all to the nobles and setting up the Carolingians. Granted, it took him another hundred some odd years to go ahead and do that fully. But you really see the mayor of the palace 
coming into their own with the advent of Clotho the second. Okay, well, this is really interesting that it shows us a big difference because I have him ranked as the number two top king. And the reason is because I didn't see his reign as particularly as conciliatory as yours. I saw it as more of an adaptation. And also, let me just say, Clotho II, I think, is an interesting figure. And this is a a very dark and perhaps messed up thing to say, but I think he was probably the best king in history to start his reign by killing kids, which is a very rare and awful thing. But of course, he got the nobles on his side and then they get handed over Brunhilda and her family, and he decided to kill off her grandchildren, or I guess it might even, if I remember correctly, it was great-grandchildren because mm-hmm. she was sold at the time, and killed them off so that way they couldn't oppose his rule. But then afterwards, he ruled as a fairly just king. So... There was, there's not a lot of kings who start out their reign by killing children, but Clothar the Se- so I guess by just by default, Clothar the Second might be the best, but he he did a surprisingly good job afterwards. But in in terms of his actual reign, what's interesting about Clothar the Second is I saw him as more adapting to changes at the time. He adapted to the economic changes of bipartite manorialism by delegating more power to local nobles. He, not only that, but even though he legally gave up some powers with the Edict of Paris, he enhanced his soft power by expanding the royal court and using it to bring in aristocrats who he could influence, something which foreshadowed what the Carolingians, particularly Charlemagne, will do uh, would do. Another thing is that he Christianized royal tradition, and he also was involved in a war which defeated the Saxons, or at least a few of the Saxon tribes. So I'll grant you that even though he was weaker than some Merovingian kings, and he would ultimately cede Austrasia to his son as the local monarch, And finally, another point against him would be that he had no major outside invasions. I saw him as a king that was willing to adapt and change with the time. And so for that, I ranked him as number two. So that's pretty interesting. You have him down as number six. I thought he was a pretty good monarch. I think overall he wasn't, he didn't do anything bad once he was in power, certainly. Um, and I do actually agree with you about the Saxons with the significant military victories. I would argue that Dagobert the first probably wouldn't have been alive if it hadn't been for Clothar the second. Uh, I think I described him as a sort of Jon Snow type figure at one point because <laughs> he went, he actually rode across the river like by himself. If you want to con- if you want to believe the tradition of all this, he rode across the river by himself and single handedly stabbed the enemy commander in the face, which is a strong statement. Um, and you know, it certainly speaks well of him as far as being a warrior king. I just really, I think the key difference between where you and I are coming at odds is the fact of how much I feel like he signed away, really setting the template for the the mayors of the palace at this point. Everything from 613 on is, in my opinion, where you see everything falling towards 
the mayor of the palace coming stronger and stronger and stronger. And all of those later kings who we said were the kings of all of Francia, but they were the Waffenians, really started only, you know, two or three reigns after his. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to get uh, Game of Thrones out of my memory. It just hurts too much. <laughs> but yeah, I choose to believe all of the stories that the chroniclers tell us. So I completely believe that he stabbed someone in the face and that Maravec was born of the sea. But in any case, so yeah, uh, that's a big difference from us. So number six, you have Clothar II. I have... Uh, Childric II, who we already talked about. So you're number five. Let's hear it. Number five, and I think you'll, you're going to go ahead and disagree on this one too. I had Dagobert I. Yeah, I'm going to disagree, but not, not as uh, badly <laughs> as the last one, uh, because I have Dagobert I as number three. So number three, number five, not the biggest difference. So why yeah, the, is uh, Dagobert the first your number five? So what I really was looking at here is the fact, okay, so 18 years in power. So reasonable length of reign, but he came in pretty young and ends up dying of dysentery, which, I mean, is not surprising at the time considering the hygiene standards. But yeah, so I had him some points there. Uh, he did decent with some alliances. He was definitely going around uh, administering justice and giving his, uh, you know, uh, his verdicts to different groups as he traveled around. So he was one of the most um, traveled kings, in my opinion, when you saw how he was going ahead and administering the legal codes. Uh, but I really, and I gave him a ton of points for Saint-Denis. As you look at his story about how he followed the deer into the shrine of Saint-Denis and ended up you know, being saved because his father didn't go in there to kill him when he defied him early in life. Uh, and they had this epiphany they built, you know, what all up to this day, even I, I point out to people as Saint Denis is where they played the 1998 World Cup. That's how, you know, significant that area is. And that chapel is inside of France proper and to this day. So he had a lot of good points there. But, you know, when it comes into some of his military victories, uh, you know, he he didn't have the most sterling record as a military commander. Um, and overall, uh, he had a decent his spouse. You know, he, he married young. Uh, had some issues there, but didn't give him a whole lot of other points. He ends up getting uh, just about a one on my scale overall, which puts him above, you know, Clothar, who I, who I came all the way back down to zero for having given the whole thing away. But I, I just was constantly unimpressed with the fact that Dagobert II was given, or I'm sorry, correction, Dagobert I was given so much, uh, historically, so much just kind of goodwill. I never understood it because when you read about it, he basically engaged in genocide, killing the Jews, killing the Saxons, doing all these other horrible things. I'm trying not to go ahead and apply modern logic and modern um, ways of looking at things to what he did, but he just doesn't seem to be a particularly nice individual overall. And the, the amount of goodwill he's received historically just seems really at odds to me. So I think a lot of people would have him higher than I did. Yeah, I think this gets into another thing in ranking kings because I I agree that to an extent you have to look at some of the bad things that they did and look at it from a moral perspective, if anything, just to see if it weakened their power. Because if you have a particularly uh, cruel king, then that can have a negative effect on their personal power, but also their culture. And so I agree he loses points for all the things uh, that you mentioned. 
On the other hand, though, I think that he did get some major gains. I mean, he was the richest king of the Merovingians, probably, because he plundered 200,000 solidi of gold from Spain. He took Zaragoza and helped place an ally on the Spanish throne. He expanded church spending. And uh, Paris grew to being a major city during his time, and the arts flourished. So those are all the pros that I gave him, and he, that's why he's my number three, although he doesn't rank higher because of the reasons you said, but also because he lost a war against the Slavs, famously, which prompted mm -hmm. the uh, Arnulfings and Pippinids to revolt, which forced him to put his son Sigebert on the throne of Austrasia as a puppet, which really helped kick off the Arnulfing and Pippinid uh, power grab. So for all those reasons, I chose to put him at number three. You put him at number five. It's not the biggest difference, but I suppose we can uh, still fight over it. So uh, no, I'm glad you. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the wins though, and everything that he lost there, because he really did. I mean, just he did not have a strong military record, and I, you know, I didn't specify what he lost to, but I mean, you're looking at a whole other king that was able to out of the Franks that was able to stand up and go ahead and take over, so you know, one of these Slavic tribes and uh, fight back against him. So very significant in that. And again, it, what's funny about. <laughs> Dagobert and all this, he literally is a French nursery rhyme. Uh, you know, Dag King Dagobert has no underpants is, you know, and I'm mispronouncing, but it's literally a day. They sing it to kids all the way up to this day it was really what came into power because of the fact that during the revolution, they couldn't say King Louis directly. So they used Dagobert because I guess phonetically it worked out as far as the number of syllables. But it's just interesting to me, like I said, that how history can change and how people can look at somebody is he actually had a movie made about him, which almost none of these kings, including Clovis, have had a movie made about them. So what the fact that he stays, uh, it, it was a French movie back in the 60s. Um, oh, if you go look it up on IMDb, there is actually a Dagobert, the first movie, and it looks like a really bad comedy. But it's still there. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, you know, Clovis, who I think we're both going to have at number one, didn't uh, even get that for him. So. I'm I'm gonna wait till they make uh, the movie where Chris Pratt stars as Dagobert. So until then, because <laughs> he seems to be starring as everything else. So all right, so that's our our debate. Your number five, my number three. So who is your number four? So this is somebody that I actually asked you to add into the list when we were first putting this whole thing together, and that's gonna be Chill Derek who uh, was really arguably the first of the Merovingian kings, depending on whether or not you believe that Merovingian even existed. Uh, if he came from a sea monster or walked over from Troy or whatever else the Franks want you to believe about how he got there. Uh, but no, Childeric was the father of Clovis. And what's really interesting about him historically is the fact that his tomb was found up in the Belgium area. And they went ahead and excavated it. And they found a lot of uh, just interesting Merovingian uh, jewelry, swords, weapons, stuff that were buried with him. You really got to see just how big a deal he, that the Frankish kings had become at that point and what Clovis had probably tried to do and where his um, funeral was very, very lavish to go ahead and make him seem like that much bigger a figure and that Clovis was filling his shoes. The bees that were taken, the golden bees that were taken out of that tomb ended up being used by Napoleon in the 19th century as a symbol of French power. So, he had a lasting 
imprint in that manner, even if people don't understand why Napoleon had the bees, that's where it all came from was Childeric. And ultimately, I look at Childeric in a way akin to a Philip II of Macedon, the way that Philip II was to uh, Alexander the Great is the way I look at Childeric and Clovis. He laid the groundwork for everything. So when you look at him, he only had Belgic a second. He had a very small footprint at the time he went ahead and was released from, or, you know, when he died and when Clovis took over for him. But he had the army set up. He had the inroads with the Romans. He had the uh, indifferent alliances set up all over the area. And so when he died, Clovis had a ready-made army that he was able to go ahead and start prosecuting his push and his empire with. If he hadn't done that, if Childeric hadn't done that, Clovis wouldn't have been able to go after Syagrius within five years of his you know, taking over the reins of power. So that's why I rank him really high. The same way that I ranked uh you know, the clothes are the second really low because of his legacy effects. I feel Childeric's legacy effects were much further and much stronger than what we ultimately saw from his reign proper. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. So that is interesting. I actually have Childeric as number five, so not a big difference. Uh, you have him at four. I have him at five. Uh, Childeric the first, I will give him enormous credit, of course, for being the Philip of Macedon character who sort of set the stage for the guy who set the stage. But uh, one thing that I throw in just as a reminder is that he united the Salian Franks, so he didn't unite all the Franks. And not only that, but he gets uh, slightly lower for me just because he didn't. His main contribution was milit uh, was in the military. He, unlike some of these later kings who could patronize the arts and the city development and that sort of and religion. He was a tribal leader. And so at this time, I think most of the kings, uh, the Merovingian kings, they weren't great patrons of the arts. They weren't like the Renaissance figures that we can think of. And so the, not, the, most of them don't get much credit for investing in those things. But quite a few of them at least get some credit, whereas for Childeric I, he is much more of the old-style tribal leader. And so for that, he's, uh, he's number five for me. No, I agree with everything you said. I, I also feel like this is just the vagaries of history, especially when you get 1,400, 1,500 years in the past. It really is about what gets discovered and you know there's even there's discoveries coming up now in england where they're finding roman mosaics up in the uk to this day that were not known so things haven't been uncovered fully yet and childeric was just you know 16th century or 17th century they happened to stumble across his tomb and 
he probably would have been a figure everybody would have forgotten about almost entirely if it hadn't been for that. But really because of the fact that he was brought so much into the forefront and there's, you know, there's even more stories that go, I don't want to get into it all right now just because it would bog down this show. But really it's just an incredibly interesting storyline that came from him and his legacy and all that. But I do agree with you that ultimately he was a small area tribal leader. So my number four, and it seems like you are ranking him higher is Clothar the first. And what's interesting is that when I was first thinking about this list, I thought I was going to rank him as number 14. I thought he was going to be the absolute worst because he led so many civil wars that killed off uh, other Franks. And he was just an awful person, uh, kept, um, <laughs> which was some of the awful stuff he did, granted, and this is, this is partially feeds into it. Uh, was just sort of par for the course of the time. I mean, polygamy was par for the course, although he was particularly nasty to his wives. He made uh, uh, Radigund uh, run away to a monastery, which actually might even be a point in his favor because she ended up greatly sponsoring the religion. So mm-hmm. that might actually be a, a pro. Um, so I thought he was going to be the worst, but in retrospect, looking at him, he was a very, very strong King. Not only that, but with his brothers, he conquered Burgundy and Thuringia, which was just uh, an enormous accomplishment. Uh, he did reunite the Franks, even though he was king of a reunited Francia for a pretty short amount of time. He sponsored churches and monasteries. So in uh, complete retrospect, I do have to give him far more credit in that even though he was, I think, a morally reprehensible person, he was the strong king of the early medieval period. So I put him as number four, and it sounds like you have him even higher. So I have an interesting situation here with him as far as what's interesting about him. I do have him higher because he was in power for 50 years, which at this time, most of the kings that we've just talked about didn't live to be 40. Right. So the fact that he was in power for 50 years is just kind of a phenomenal. Now, granted, he was in power not as the only king. He was really only in power as the only king of France here for the last three years. Right. And so I can see where you could rank him lower because of the fact that in those three years, there was nothing horribly significant that happened. But over the course of 50 years in power, he, you, like you said, he had those significant alliances. He does get some points for strength of spouse because of Radagund and because of other things that he did. Um, he didn't do much to go ahead and actually. I would even say the law codes kind of reverted a little bit in his time, but militarily he did push the boundaries. He kept on pushing out. Um, he went into the, you know, what's the Armorican peninsula at the time now with modern day Brittany and was pushing against them. And he was ruthless. Like you were pointing to, this is a guy who was the prototype of the Merovingians more. So I would even argue than possibly Clovis. He murdered his nephews almost first thing in, because when his brother died, he didn't want them going ahead and vying for power and turning that state into two separate kingdoms. He went ahead. He was, like you said, polygamist, was horrible to his wives. There's even a picture out there of him burning his son and his entire his son's entire family. Well, his son was fortunately dead when he set fire to the house, but the rest of the family wasn't. 
I mean, so when you talk about somebody who was willing to do whatever he needed to do, even in a time when that statement was pretty ruthless, this guy was even beyond that. So ultimately, as I'm trying to look at everybody one by one, and I'm trying not to go ahead and apply today's modern sensibilities to those rankings, because I want to be able to say, you know, he did what he had to do at that time. This is a guy who you can make the argument against him, but I think you can also make the argument that he really was the Merovingian of the Merovingians when it came to how he ruled. No, I absolutely agree on that. And I know we're not supposed to use the term Dark Ages, but as far as Dark Age kings are concerned, he was, I think, the epitome of the Dark Age powerful monarch. I mean, let's not forget, he didn't just kill his nephews, but according to the story, he came in with uh, one of his brothers and his nephews ran up to his uh, brother begging for mercy and his brother just stood there and Clothar drove his sword through the stomach of each of his nephews. And not only that, but that was, that was just the second kinslaying of Clothar out of three, because if you really go back, he was uh, not too distantly related to the ruling Burgundian house, because I think through his, uh, it was either his mother, the mother, yeah, yeah, was was uh, Burgundian. So he kills his uh, something like second cousins uh, with his brother. So you know, not going to blame him entirely for that. But then he kills his nephews in front of uh, their uh, his mother. He kills his son and his family. So uh, he was a, an absolutely brutal figure, but. In retrospect, I uh, I have to give him uh, credit for being such a powerful monarch. So I had him ranked four. Where do you have him? So I have him and his brother Childebert. So here's the other thing too: Childebert the first actually wasn't on our list because he wasn't ever actually in control by himself. Because like I said, he died three years before Clothar, but he they were almost in charge together during that entire time. So I have him all the way up to number two. Clothar the, uh, Clothar the first, oh, wow. uh, Schildebert the first, who is technically not, like I said, a part of the unified list. He was still there with them the whole time. And you're talking about a three year separation. Really at that point, it doesn't come down to their policies or who was doing better. It literally just came down to who lived longer Yeah. at a time when living into your seventies was just not something that happened very often. You know, one thing that I was thinking about, it is so strange that if there's uh how do I even put this? I was thinking of how I could put this on a t-shirt, but it was something like, uh, if his name's Clothar, there's a 66% chance that he's going to do some kin slang. I was thinking of putting that on a t-shirt, but then I thought this is way, way too obscure for, uh, to even put on a t-shirt. Um, you know, I suppose you could be like that guy, that history nerd of the party, <laughs> but then, you would have to explain it. So, but yeah, I mean, Clothar the first uh, was involved in three different kinslaying incidents. Clothar the second starts out his reign by killing off the grandkids of Brunhilda, who he's related to. Um, so, uh, a lot of uh, killing kids. But if you can get over that, these were some pretty strong, very capable monarchs who actually did quite a lot of good for the realm, which is a very strange thing to think about. But it was a brutal time that they lived in. I 
think you really nailed the head, you know, hit the nail on the head with that one as far as saying if you can get over the fact that they were murdering children, then then the Merovingians are for you. Because no, I mean that really yeah. is the epitome of what they're at. I mean, you didn't even mention with Clothar the second that yeah, he killed the kids, but he had a seventy year old woman, he had Brunhilde torn apart with wild horses, which I don't know if that's the worst way I can think of dying or if it would happen so quickly that, yeah, I don't even like to think about it, but I mean, that's about as brutal as you can get. And if you go look, I mean, for all the good things that Brunhilde did, when you put her name into Google, the first 90 pictures are going to be of her getting ripped apart by horses. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I brushed that off just because they were enemies, you know, but whereas with the kids, I, I can't help but think, well, they didn't do anything to you there. It's just that their existence was a threat. You know, it's uh, it was the the early modern uh, living. But um, thank you for giving me a a different tagline for a T-shirt. If you can get over the child killing, the Merovingians are for you. So (laughs) I want all the royalties. uh, We I think we've talked about everyone but the big one so far. So my number three was Dagobert the first. My number two was Clothar the second. You ranked Childric the first as your number three and you ranked Clothar the first as your number two. I don't think it is any surprise whatsoever who our number one is, which is Clovis the first. So why don't you tell us why is he the head honcho? Well, you know, I, I can say that he's the head honcho. I said this in the podcast when I first set it up because he is literally the head. If you go to the gallery of battles in Versailles and you look at the picture number one up on the walls in there of all the great kings that ever stood, Napoleon included, inside of France, he is the one who was on the first wall on his horse with, you know, invoking God to come down on his side so he can beat the Alemanni. Even the French go ahead and say that, you know, at some level, he is the number one or he's the first person. He's the first king of France. Um, That is really why I got interested in him in the first place and also why I think you can consider him overall to be the number one. Um, But beyond just simply one picture, this is a guy who went ahead and brought the Franks out of obscurity, took him from Belgica Seconda to pretty much the entire boundary of what we would consider now modern France, with the exception of Burgundy, uh, you know, Septimani, the area right along the Mediterranean coast, and really the Brittany Peninsula. Uh, so land-wise, he was huge. He also went ahead, he married very well inside of uh, marrying Clotilde. That was huge for him. And because of Clotilde, he was brought to Catholicism as opposed to Arianism. And when he went to Catholicism, he picked up all the bonus points that come along with having a ready-made infrastructure from Rome from the, what was still considered to be the Western Roman Empire, because just because 476 happened doesn't mean that people stopped seeing Rome as a power, and certainly not the Roman Catholic Church. His coming over to the Roman Catholic Church, being proclaimed you know, Patricius by the sitting pope at the time, or actually, a correction, I'm sorry, by the Byzantine emperor, or the Eastern Roman emperor, he had the alliances, he had the religion, he had the wife, he had the 30-year reign, and pretty much all of Gregory Tour is talking about what he did. So there's no question that when you're talking about the Franks, when you're talking about the origin of the current state, it all begins with Clovis. And the only thing you can say against him really is that he was incredibly brutal, just like Clothar the first. He was the one that would, you know, throw somebody's ax on the ground. And then when they were bending over to pick it up, would split their head in half. And he did that over a vase. You can say that he had a number of incidents that were very similar, but being nice at this time was not a prerequisite to being king. 
And as a matter of fact, it was probably something that would get you killed as a king. So he was able to find that balance of power between being an absolute tyrant who went so far and being murderous that he ends up getting overthrown himself, uh, that he was able to become the person that everybody will remember forever. You know, he might have just been trying to be funny by killing that guy, you know, who he told to pick up his axe. I don't know if you listened to a recent episode I did about uh, Frankish humor, but basically every every joke ended with and then I killed him. So he could have <laughs> could have been a pretty hilarious king back at the time. You know, a lot of people would find that funny. But in any case, I agree with you on everything. He is sort of the George Washington of Francia. He sets everything up, not just he sets up the royal traditions, the political traditions. Uh, One thing uh, which you didn't mention is he also codified the Salic law. So he sets up this incredibly important legal tradition that is going to essentially ripple throughout uh, French history. So yeah, this guy, he is the uh, the undisputed number one. I just uh, knew going into this that uh, you and I, if we were going to agree on one monarch, it, it was going to be Clovis. I mean, he's he's a very strong contender for one of the best leaders in the history of all Francia, Um, maybe not to the level of Charlemagne. I mean, we'll have to see, you know, perhaps if we do another episode, uh, where we compare the Carolingians and rank them, um, I'm sure that going into that Charlemagne's probably going to be our number one. If you don't have Charlemagne as your number one Carolingian, I think we're going to have some talking to do, but yeah, Clovis, he's one of the all time greats. It's, uh, uh, no dispute there. Well, the last thing I have on Clovis is, as opposed to Charlemagne, who multiple different, like the Germans can make a claim on Charlemagne, Aachen, Cologne, all those different areas where they had a power base are in modern day Germany. And I understand the borders have fluctuated over time many, many times over, but there's still the fact that Charlemagne is essentially a Germanic king and was the Holy Roman Empire, which the Holy Roman Empire became most of what's now modern day Germany. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Clovis was Frankish. He is only French. He's the only one that, you know, the French can go back to and say he is ours alone and no one else can really make a claim on him. Whereas Charlemagne, they can, someone else could still make a claim on him if somebody really wanted to over the course of time. So he is the quintessential French king. And when you look back, it's always kind of questionable. Where do you start a history of the French podcast? Because you can go all the way back, like I said in the very beginning, you went all the way back to the beginning of dawn of time. I've heard other people saying that, you know, really they don't think anything before the Carolingians counts. I personally would say, like you said, George Washington as Clovis is the best kind of example I think that you can give for the French proper when you talk about Clovis. Yeah, he seems to be, I mean, uh, obviously there isn't a 100% uh, agreement on when 
the French began, but it seems like most people, they, they choose Clovis as being uh, the, the start of where this all began. In fact, before we started this uh, podcast together, we were talking back and forth and you wanted to add Childeric, uh the first to our conversation because I originally didn't have him. I started with Clovis because he was the one who united all the Franks, whereas Childeric the first was just the king of the Salian Franks. So even going into this podcast, uh, you know, I thought we were just going to, I assumed we were going to start with Clovis, but you you needled me into adding an extra king. And the and only reason I come up with that is just because of the legacy there. And again, it's the Philip II versus Alexander the Great. There's no question about who the better king was overall in history. But that warm start that those earlier kings were able to provide to their sons ended up really being what allowed them to take the whole package of brawn and ability and intelligence and apply it all together at the right time, right place. And, you know, for Clovis taking out Syagrius and then moving on to everybody else, there was really no doubt he was the guy to take over for Gaul and, you know, whatever we want to call it this time, Francia. And yeah, again, I, I just, I, I keep going back to what you said, George Washington of the Franks. There, there's no better way to put that. So on that note, uh, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us and ranking the Merovingians. Uh, I would love to have uh, you on the podcast in future to rank the Carolingians, or maybe for the uh, that next episode, maybe I could come on to your podcast. I am a ambitious but also very flexible person. So uh, perhaps in future we can rank the Carolingians. I mentioned on my uh, Patreon that eventually my hope is as I go through all of French history, perhaps I could rank all of the French monarchs and maybe even all of the leaders of historical France, although I imagine that's going to take quite a long time. It's going to take, you know, it's taken me three years to get up to Hugh Capet. So I have no idea when we're going to get up to Macron. I think that's going to be quite a time. But if if you can be patient, uh, maybe we can do the Carolingians together. So Ben, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, please, everyone, check out his podcast, uh, Thugs and Miracles. Thank you very much, Gary. You're doing tremendous things over there at the French History Podcast, and it really has been an honor to be on the show. So thank you very much and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. 
Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.